If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 16. That is found on page 913 in your pew Bibles. We have been uh, slow walking through the book of Acts over the last uh, several weeks and even months now, using these foundational stories that we see there to question, to reevaluate everything we think we know and believe about the church. This morning, we are going to read about the many signs and wonders that God was doing through the hands of the apostles. Uh, What was that all about? Why was that happening? Uh, What was it communicating? And what is the significance of these stories for us today in the contemporary church? Those are some of the questions we're going to try and answer as we work our way through this story. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered around the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, the first thing we need to figure out, obviously, is what was the the purpose of all of these signs and wonders in the early church? Why is Luke showing us this story? How did he understand these signs and wonders to function? Most commentators will point out here that Luke is understanding these incidents that he's just narrated as in some way the answer to the prayer of the early church that he recorded for us in Acts 4, 29 to 30. So you're going to do a little bit of page flipping today, not too much, but probably just flip over one page and you can see that prayer. You remember that story. We, We actually read that story just before Christmas, before we took our Christmas break. The early church had their first brush with persecution. I'm sure you remember that. Um, The apostles were arrested. They were kind of uh, clamped down there, and they were ordered to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And they were warned that there would be further consequences if they carried on. And as Pastor Rob uh, explained to us, the church came together immediately. They began to pray. This is what they prayed. They said, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So the apostles were ordered to stop preaching. They were told there would be serious consequences if, if they ignored that order. And so the early church responded to that. The whole church got together, and they prayed that the apostles would keep preaching. It would... You know, it's a custom in the church, typically before the preacher gets up to preach, somebody prays uh, a a prayer of invocation, invoking the the blessing and help of God upon the lips of of the preacher. That's what we see at the end of Acts 4, the greatest invocation prayer ever prayed, or, or at least the most spectacular response to an invocation prayer ever, ever received. You don't have to have been to seminary to understand the connection between these stories. The, the Bible is saying, this is that. What the church prayed for in, in Acts chapter 4 is here received in Acts chapter 5. 
That's what's going on here. This is that. The function of these signs and wonders that have just been narrated to us is specifically to highlight, to emphasize, to undergird, to authorize the apostolic preaching that was happening in the early church. That's how Luke clearly understands it. And, and that's how the early church understood these things as well. In Hebrews chapter 2, you don't have to flip there, I'll put that up on the screen, but in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 to 4, it says, speaking of the apostolic gospel, it was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So the original purpose of signs and wonders was to authenticate the apostolic preaching of the gospel. I don't think there can be any doubt about that. Apostolic Christianity was one of several groups making rival claims within Judaism at this point. So the Pharisees were over here saying, this is the way forward. And the Sadducees were over here saying, no, 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 this is the way forward. And the Essenes, they were out in the desert saying, no, no, this is the way forward. And now the apostles of Jesus Christ are standing up and saying, no, 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 no. This is the way forward. So how could anyone know for sure who was really and truly speaking for God? Well, when Peter's shadow is healing people and Paul's handkerchief is healing people, as we're going to read about in Acts 19, that's a pretty compelling argument that God is speaking through the apostles of Jesus Christ, that the true message of salvation is being preached over here, that Jesus really is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. The primary purpose of the signs and wonders that we're reading about in the book of Acts was to affirm and validate the gospel being preached by the apostles. That's why God did these miracles the way he did. He didn't just have spectacular things happening to Christians generally, right? That could have happened. There could have been reports that, hey, did you hear what happened to the Smith family? Smith family got saved on Friday, and on Sunday afternoon, Mrs. Smith was healed of her cancer. Can you believe that? And did you hear what happened to the Jones family? Jones family got healed on Thursday, and on Saturday, the Jones boy who was paralyzed stood up, started dancing around. Did you hear about that? That's not what happened. All of these miracles, all of these signs and wonders were mediated through the hands of the apostles, specifically. So it's the Smith, the Smith family mom didn't get healed until one of the apostles came and prayed, touched her and prayed over her in Jesus' name. The Jones boy didn't stand up and dance until one of the apostles touched him and prayed over him in Jesus' name. Then it happened. Why? Why did God do it this way? To strengthen that connection, to highlight that connection between the apostles and the person and work of Jesus. And then to further emphasize that connection, you, I'm sure you've noticed this as you've read through the book of Acts. We've just been reading through the book of Acts in our RMM uh, daily Bible readings. I'm sure you noticed this. Many of the miracles that are recorded in the book of Acts by the apostles intentionally mimic miracles that were done by Jesus in his earthly life and ministry. We don't have time to look at all of them, of course, but just, just flip maybe two pages. It was two pages in my Bible, two pages to the right to Acts 9. There's just a little cluster of them I'll have you look at. So look at Acts 9, verses 32 to 34. By the way, isn't that the best sound you'll ever hear in church? Love that sound. All right, Acts 2, 32 to 34 says this. Now, as Peter went there and, and there, here and there, among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas 
bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. By the way, you notice he doesn't say, Simon Peter heals you? Okay. Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed, and immediately he rose. Well, what does that sound like? That sounds for all the world like the story narrated in Matthew 9 where Jesus heals the paralytic. Do you remember that? Matthew 9, 6 has the same phrase, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now, if you remember, that healing in Matthew 9 happened right outside Peter's door. It actually happened through Peter's roof, which was weird. But anyway, Peter saw that. He had a front row seat for that, didn't he? And so here, all Peter is really doing is repeating things that he saw Jesus say and do. Same idea in Acts 9, 40 to 41. Just drop your eyes there. Here in this story, a lady has died, and everybody's mourning for her. But the Bible says, Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Well, what does that sound like? That sounds for all the world like the healing of the girl who died in Mark 5.41. And it is clearly meant to. Mark's gospel is the gospel that Mark, the secretary of Peter, wrote down. But it's really Peter's gospel. It's Peter's recollections. It's interesting to read about Peter's recollections of that particular event. So in Mark 5, in the healing of the little girl by Jesus, it says this, Taking her by the hand, he, Jesus, said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Are you seeing that? There is one letter difference in what Jesus said to the woman and what Peter says to the woman. Talitha kum, Tabitha, arise. Kumi means arise. Peter, again, is just repeating stuff that he heard Jesus say. He understands. He is presenting the things he is doing. He's so careful here. He doesn't want glory for himself. Just like he said, the Lord Jesus heals you. He's just sticking real close to the pattern that Jesus set. He's just saying and doing things he saw Jesus say and do. And the point is very obvious for anyone with eyes to see. All of these miracles are saying the apostles are the authorized spokespersons and representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth. The salvation that he secured is now available through the gospel that they are preaching. To listen to them is to listen to Jesus. To touch them is to touch Jesus. That's the point. I think that's 90% of what's going on in this passage that we just read, but there's a little something extra I want you to see as well. Look, Look again, just flip back to Acts 5 now. Acts 5.13, Luke says this. Very, very interesting. He says, none of the rest dared to join them. That's an interesting phrase. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. So there was both fear and attraction going on at this point in the story. We know there was attraction. Acts 5.14 says, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So people were getting saved. People were coming in. People were joining the church but not in any kind of casual way, not after what had happened to Ananias and Sapphira. Remember, this story is in your Bible immediately after that story, right? Look look in your Bible to the top part of 
Acts 5. That's the story of Ananias and Sapphira, where the judgment of God fell on this couple who lied to the church, who tried to use their service as an opportunity to virtue signal. Complete opposite of Peter. Peter's healing people saying, Jesus heals you. And you got people over here trying to use Christian service as a way to virtue signal. And God struck them dead. And so now we've got this weird vibe going on in the church. People are like, I want to be a part of that. And other people are like, are you nuts? That was, that was kind of the feel. Interesting, John Stott summarizes this moment in the history of the church. He says, it was a remarkable demonstration of the power of God to heal and free human beings as the Ananias and Sapphira episode had been of his power to judge them. See, a part, a part of the purpose of these signs and wonders, in, including the miraculous judgment of Ananias and Sapphira, was to position the church as the place where the Lord was at work. These events served to identify the church as the new temple of the living God. Again, the church was making claims that were being contested. There were Jews over here saying, this is the temple of the Lord. And now you got the apostles of Jesus over here saying, no, 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 this is the temple of the Lord. The church is the temple of the Lord. So which is it? Well, the answer is where you see the fire falling. That was the question that these stories were posing, and that was the answer that these stories were providing to the first century citizens in Jerusalem. These signs and wonders were authenticating the claims of the apostles to speak for Christ, and they were also positioning the church as the new temple and household of God. But they did not come without a cost, and we need to spend a moment or two talking about that as well. Jesus had a complicated relationship with signs and wonders. I'm sure you've noticed that as you read through the Bible. He certainly understood the value of communicating in this way. He said in Matthew 9, 6, just before the bit of that story that we already read, he said, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So Jesus used that miracle to communicate something about his person and identity. And yet he also understood that doing these sorts of things, doing these sorts of signs and wonders, actually made it a lot more complicated to preach the gospel. When he healed Peter's mother-in-law, do you remember that? He healed Peter's mother-in-law. Word about that spread through the region like wildfire. And within hours, there was a massive lineup of people at the front door waiting to be healed. And do you remember what Jesus did? Mark 1, 35 to 38 says, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next town that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. You seen that? Jesus hid from people who were seeking a miracle. He bypassed them so that he could go on to the other towns and preach the gospel. Jesus understood his mission, and Jesus also understood human nature. He understood that people will always obsess over their immediate needs, often to the neglect of their ultimate needs. And that's a problem. It continues to, to be a problem in the church today. I've had people say to me, the, uh, on the week following a Sunday where we had five people baptized, you know, Pastor, what do you think is wrong with our church? We haven't seen anyone healed in ages. I'm not even sure how to answer that. I mean, five people just got baptized. 
Five people just passed over from life to death. Five people now have been healed in a forever way. Five people will receive new bodies that will never get sick, that will never age, and will never die. Praise the Lord. Because of their faith in Jesus Christ, because of their union with God through the person and work of Christ, and because of their identification with Christ through faith and baptism, they have been forever changed. That's the ultimate miracle. Do you understand, brothers and sisters, that every person who gets healed of cancer will very shortly thereafter get sick with something else and die? So healing is great, but it is not ultimate. But it feels ultimate to most human beings. So, of course, we have to be sensitive to that. Jesus was certainly sensitive to that. Bottom line is this. Signs and wonders have to be handled carefully. There is a purpose for them, but their capacity to distract is almost measureless. God knows that, and I think Bible readers ought to know that as well. Third thing we need to talk about is the ongoing controversy in the church around signs and wonders. Now, I will say this. I think the vast majority of Christians would agree with absolutely everything we've said thus far. Most Christians, the vast majority of Christians, would agree, would acknowledge that the Bible warns us about the potential of signs and wonders to distract. Anyone who's read any of the four Gospels is going to agree with you. Because again, you're going to see many times Jesus is going to have that complicated relationship with signs and wonders. People are going to want Jesus. They're going to want the healing. And Jesus is going to say, this is going to complicate things. And he's going to bypass. He's going to move. And, and, then, and then in another town, you'll see him doing a miracle. And you think, okay, this is complicated. So anyone, anyone who's re- read any chunk of the Gospels, I think is going to agree with us on that point. They're going to say, yep, definitely the Bible's cautioning us here about the complicated nature of signs and wonders, the potential cost. And I think most Christians, the vast majority of of Bible-reading Christians are going to agree that the original reason for signs and wonders was to authenticate the apostles and to validate the claims of the early church. The controversy has to do with what comes after that. The controversy has to do with the role of signs and wonders in the church moving forward. And I want to be careful here because I understand the human capacity for justifying one's own experiences. A lot of what we call conviction is really just post hoc justification, meaning we've had an experience that was very impressive to us, and so we gather, we cherry pick some facts and some verses, and we construct a narrative that justifies why we feel the way we do. That's how a lot of human thinking works. It's thinking after the fact. It's thinking after your experience. It's how most brains are wired. Okay, I get that. And so the reality is, if, if you've ever been healed, or if you've ever had a loved one healed, that's going to incline you in a certain direction in this particular conversation that we're having in the church at this moment. Similarly, if you have a relative, if your mother-in-law was scammed by a televangelist selling snake oil on the internet, that's going to incline you in a particular direction. But as Christians, we want to base our convictions on the Word of God. So let's take a look at that. One of the things we notice when we do that 
is that there does not appear to be the same sort of emphasis on signs and wonders as an indicator of authority in the second generation of the church. In the first generation of the church, it was very common to hear an apostle appealing to signs and wonders as proof of his authority. When Paul was being questioned by the Corinthians, for example, he reminded them, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So you couldn't just claim to be an apostle in the first generation. You can just make some business cards and start presenting yourself as an apostle, right? Put up a website, bingo, bango, Bob's your uncle. That's not how it worked. You had to be able to demonstrate your apostolic bona fides. And Paul could do that. He could say, hey, listen, I did the signs and wonders you saw, right? I met the criteria, so you need to listen to me. But you don't see anything like that as the church transitions from the foundational generation to the second and subsequent generations. Paul never says to Titus or Timothy, are those folks giving you a hard time? Just fire off a couple miracles and that ought to settle things down. And he, he never says to a church, hey, listen, don't ever put an elder in place or don't ever hire a pastor unless you, you've got some confirmed signs and wonders. He never says that. Instead, he says stuff like this, study to show yourself approved, a workman who needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. An overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunk, not violent, not, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. So all of a sudden, the emphasis is not on miraculous bona fides, but rather on some pretty mundane things like studying, practicing, and growing in character. That's how leaders in the second generation prove their authority, not by doing miracles, but by being good people, growing in the Lord, and studying the Bible. So there can be absolutely no doubt there is something different in the second and subsequent generations of the church. The first generation, like Pastor Rob was talking about and and, uh, as we just sang about, the first generation is the foundation. Paul says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So the apostles needed spectacular authority for what they were doing because they were completely rebuilding the foundation of the household of God. Jesus is the new foundation. Again, if, if you're an RMM Bible reader, and if you're not, and you're wondering, what in the world are you talking about, crazy man? Uh, we have a Bible reading plan that uh, looks like about 60% of the adults in the church are using based on the survey, which, by the way, you should go to the website and take. Um, but so it's just it's a, a Bible reading plan that most of the people in the room know, know what I'm talking about. This morning you read Matthew 22. Absolutely fascinating parables in Matthew 22. Did you notice that? Did you see the one um, parable of the vineyard uh, where, and and it's clearly about the the Jewish leadership. In fact, you don't even need to guess. Like, this is not a, you have to be a seminary to get this. At the end of that parable, it says the Jewish leaders understood he spoke this parable against them. That's very helpful, right? And so he's saying, you know, you guys are like the leaders that God gave you everything you needed to get the job done. He gave you great resources. He gave you tons of opportunities. But you never gave back to God what he expected. 
And not only that, every time he sent a prophet to knock you back on track, that's what a prophet is, basically. Prophet's like a guy with a bat who, when the people are wandering, smacks him on the side of the head, hopefully to get him back in the middle of the road, right? But instead, they took the bat out of the prophet's hands and beat him to death. He says, you did that to everybody God sent to you. And then he sent you his son. And guess what? He says, you're going to do that to him too. No worries, though. He says, because God is going to going to grind this whole thing down to a single stone. He actually says that. That's where we get the cornerstone thing. That's why the apostle is saying it here, because he heard, you know, apostles heard Jesus say this about himself in the parables. So Jesus says, I'm the cornerstone. God's going to grind the, the house down to one stone, flesh that out with some apostles, you give you a ground floor, and then build up the whole thing from there. We read about that in Matthew 22. Here the apostle Paul is assuming that same basic perspective and what he's saying as well. But that's, a, look, that's an enormous claim. Like, you don't just walk into one of the oldest religions in the ancient world and say, you blew it, so we're grinding it down to a nub, building a new foundation, and rebuilding from almost scratch. That's a big claim. That's a big claim. And so you needed spectacular authority. You needed spectacular validation to make that claim. And that's how signs and wonders function in the first generation. But now, as we transition to the subsequent generations, the emphasis clearly shifts from spectacular validation to faithful stewardship. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says to two very prominent second-generation leaders. He says, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Then he says, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. To another second generation leader, he says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Isn't that interesting? He, he doesn't say to these second generation leaders, further extend the footprint of the foundation. Further develop Christian doctrine. He doesn't say that. He says, we've handed you. Christian doctrine. Now steward it, teach it, pass it on. That's what he's saying. It's a completely different task. He's telling them to build up, not out. He, he tells Titus, because now we're talking about how to pass from second generation leaders to third generation leaders. He tells Titus to appoint elders in the churches of Crete, and he tells them what to look for in a candidate. He says he must hold firm to the trustworthy worthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So again, according to the Apostle Paul, the job of second and third generation leaders was to faithfully steward, teach, and guard the apostolic deposit, the apostolic gospel, not to further develop it, not to expand upon it. Steward, teach, defend. That's a different task. And it does not appear to have required supernatural attestation, or at least there is no mention of those things in the text. And that's the reason for the controversy. Some say that signs and wonders should still be looked for as an indicator of God's affirmation on a particular minister and a particular ministry. And so there are people today who call themselves apostles and who point to signs and wonders as proof of their special authority. And there are others who say that particular function has expired. And as you can well imagine, 
thanks to the internet, there are a whole host of options in between. So, where does that leave us today? Some principles and guidelines moving forward. The first and most important thing I would say to you is this, trust in the apostolic gospel. That's the main point of the passage, so it ought to be your main takeaway from the text. The signs and wonders that were done through the apostles were done so as to establish them as the authorized spokespersons and representatives of Jesus. So listen to them. Jesus wants you to listen to them. He labored to make a rock-solid connection between his ministry and their ministry. He said to them, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Are you seeing that chain? Jesus came and he said, no, listen, I speak for the Father in a unique and authoritative way. And then he says, I'm sending you out as, he, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. I'm sending you out to speak for me in a unique and authoritative way. Jesus labored to make that connection. So here's the point, brothers and sisters. No one who wants to credibly call themselves a Christian, no one gets to say, well, Jesus never said anything about that, therefore it must not be very important. You'll hear that said. You heard it said this past week with respect to matters of human sexuality in the wake of the whole Ivan Provorov controversy, didn't you? People will say, why are Christians so up in arms about that? I don't recall any of that in the red letter portion of the Bible. P.S., when you say stuff like that, it just means you haven't read or understood the red-letter portions of the Bible because Jesus actually did affirm the original design of God for marriage, did that in Matthew 19, and he also rejected every deviation from that pattern, Matthew 15, but nobody reads that far, right? They just get the glitzy headlines. But you don't get to say that as a believer because the apostles did speak to that matter, multiple occasions. And therefore, if we believe that the apostles are Jesus' authorized spokespersons, then that's a distinction without a difference. Jesus did speak about those things. He spoke about them through the mouths of his apostles, and he provided affirmation and attestation by working through them many signs and wonders. That's the point of the story we're reading right now. The miracles we just read about in Acts 5 are there making the point that when the apostles speak, Jesus speaks, and therefore we need to listen to them. A second bit of encouragement I would give to you is this. Try to avoid saying more or less than the Bible does on these matters. I think the charismatics and the cessationists are both saying more than the Bible says with respect to signs and wonders. Charismatics generally are saying that we should expect the same level of miraculous activity in the church today that we read about in the book of Acts. And if we don't, then it usually indicates that there's either sin in the camp or a lack of faith on the part of the people. But that's not what I see in the Bible. I don't see the same emphasis or expectation with respect to signs and wonders in the second generation and the subsequent generations as I see in the first. So I think the charismatics are saying too much here. I think they are writing checks that the Holy Spirit does not feel obligated to cash. But I think the cessationists are saying too much as well. They generally want to say that signs and wonders ceased. That's where you get the name cessationist. These, these complicated words that we throw around in church actually are not that complicated. Cessationist means they believe that signs and wonders have ceased. 
Charismatic means that all the manifestations of the Spirit we see charisma in the first century should carry on. But like I said, they're both saying too much. How can you, how, on what basis could you say that, that these things have ceased for sure in the generation of the apostles just because the signs and wonders we just read about were for a specific reason does not necessarily mean that God could not manifest them again for other reasons. According to the Bible, our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. People ask me all the time, are you a charismatic or a cessationist? I'm like, why can't there be a third option called Bible reader? Is that an option? I want to be Psalm 115.3 guy. I want to be the, maybe that's an option. You can just say sovereigntist. Could we get a movement? We could start a website for that. I just want to say God is God. I can tell you why he did that there because the text makes that pretty clear. I'm not going to tell him what he can't do moving forward, are you? My God sits in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So I think the cessationists are saying too much as well. I think that's dangerous. But you know what else is dangerous? What, in addition to saying too much, it's dangerous to say too little. Because God does heal. You say amen to that? I believe he does. I don't know how much Bible flipping you're you're interested in doing, but James 5, 14 to 16 is a passage we use in this church all the time. Anytime folks are are sick or they have an illness or an ailment, uh, they can invite themselves or or ask to to be invited to elder prayer. I don't know if you know this, but our elders, um, Brother Brent, and I'm I'm mindful of the fact that I've been here now for 17 years, so I'm constantly assuming everybody knows everybody because I know everybody. But then I'm looking out here, and I see a whole bunch of new people, and I actually don't know you, so I figure you probably don't know me, and you don't know who Brent was, so maybe I should probably just explain some stuff. Uh, we We have some elders in this church. And uh, Brent, who did the prayer, he's one of them. He's the chair of our elders board. And we meet on Monday nights to pray for our people. And so we, just, we pray through the prayer list. You, you have a little insert on your uh, thingy-ding. What's the word I'm looking for? Bulletin. Uh, you have a little prayer list there. On the back, you can fill that in, put your prayer request in. We get a print out of that. We meet, we pray for you on Monday nights. But if, if you call the office and say, listen, I've got this ailment, I've got this issue, would you pray for me? Then we say, yes, come and join us. You sit in a chair, and we do what the Bible says. In James 5, it says, if anyone is sick, let them call the elders. Let the elders gather around them, anoint them with oil, and pray for them. And it says, the prayer of faith will heal the sick. Can I tell you something? That is a great example of saying what you can say and not saying what you should not say. James just says what is true. If you come to God for grace through Jesus Christ, you will receive it, period. You say amen to that? You know what he doesn't say anything about? When. Now, maybe right then and there. I mean, we've seen people miraculously healed in this church. We have. Maybe slowly over a process of a couple months. We just this morning gave thanks for a little girl the doctors were saying would never do this and would never do that and would never do this. And, and her grandparents reached out and just said, would you just pray? Because we can't accept that. And we've been praying about that for months and we just gave thanks because she's doing this and she's doing that and she's doing this. Thanks be to God. So we just say what's in the Bible. 
Bible says anoint people with oil. I always tell people, I have actually no idea why we do that. It just says to do it. I don't know what the oil does. I don't think it makes the prayer any more effective. My guess is, and I always just say it's a guess. It's not explained in the Bible. My guess is it extends the impact of the prayer for you because you go home thinking it and smelling it for like hours. Maybe that's it. I have no idea. But that's what we do. And we never give any indication of timing. We never say, oh, you know, you're going to be healed this afternoon. That's writing a check the Holy Spirit doesn't promise to cash. We never say, this is going to sort itself out over two months. That's writing a check the Holy Spirit doesn't promise to cash. We just say, if you are coming to the Lord today for grace, through faith, through Christ, you will be healed. Maybe today, maybe over the next two months, maybe at the resurrection of all believers, because we know for sure it happens then, at the resurrection of all believers when Christ returns, There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more dying. There'll be no more disease for the first things have passed away. Amen? Amen. So we say that. I believe that. Don't ever not say that. God heals. And God speaks. Brothers and sisters, we're going to get into that in just a little bit. When we get to Agabus, the daughters of Philip, God is speaking all over the place. We'll get to that. God is alive and at work in this world. So just say what the Bible says. And if you get asked a question about something the Bible doesn't specifically address, my advice is put your hand over your mouth and get back to work. That's the third bit of counsel I'd give you anyway. Focus on the task you were assigned. Jesus was pretty clear about what we ought to be doing. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So according to Jesus, our job is to make disciples. Our job is to baptize folks who have heard the word and believed it and put their faith in Jesus. Our job is to teach folks everything that Jesus commanded, either directly or indirectly through the apostles, about how to live before God and serve and love one another. That's the job. And just even speaking that job out loud makes it sound as though that job is big enough to consume all of our best thoughts and efforts over the next several lifetimes. Amen? So let's do that. Let's focus on that. But then also, let's also remain open to whatever God may choose to do in the future. My reading of the Bible inclines me to believe or to understand that God focuses most of his miraculous activity around the great events and interventions in redemptive history. You probably notice the same thing if you're reading the Bible. We think of these great interventions. God is an intervening God. Hallelujah. And so we think of the Exodus, for example. The people of Israel are at this low ebb. They're in a terrible situation. They're slaves in Egypt. My goodness, it was awful. And that's a great intervention. It's the great redemptive intervention in the Old Testament. And if you remember, you remember this from Sunday school, it was accompanied by quite a number of signs and wonders, wasn't it? Miracles all over the place. Stuff turning to blood, flies doing all their fly things, and, and uh, babies dying. My goodness, right? Darkness, hail, red seas splitting. It was a, it was a cluster of signs and wonders. And then, of course, we think of the great intervention 
of, of the biblical storyline, the, the first coming of Jesus Christ with all the signs and wonders associated with his ministry and the echo of all those signs and wonders in the ministry of the apostles. But there's a reason we call it the first coming, isn't it? Because there's a second coming. There's one great intervention yet to come. And my reading of the Bible inclines me to expect a fair number of fireworks associated with that event. And so I would hate for us all to still be in a season of overcorrection and overreaction to the excesses of the charismatic movement in the late 20th century. I'd like us to be ready. I'd like us to be open. I'd like us to be full of faith and characterized by anticipation. But how like the devil to rob us of hope and expectation by overwhelming us with counterfeit and deceit just prior to the arrival of the real thing. Let's not fall for that. Let's believe the apostolic gospel. Let's content ourselves with the teaching of Holy Scripture. Let's focus on the task we were given. And let's position ourselves for whatever future fillings and future graces the Lord in his wisdom sees fit to give. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, you do all things right and in perfect proportion. We're thankful for that. We're thankful for how you give us confidence to put our trust in this full foundation, this full apostolic gospel, by providing such ample and obvious attestation for the works of the apostles. Lord, we believe that when they speak, you speak. We believe that their word is your word. We believe that everything between these covers with Christ as cornerstone is our foundation for the future. And we need that because, Lord, the world is shifting all around us. Our culture has lost its foundation. Our culture has lost its way. They don't know why they believe anything they believe. And therefore, those beliefs can change on a whim. But, Lord, we are those who are rooted in a fixed and sure foundation. And we give you thanks for that. We give you thanks that we can know what is true and what is not. We can know what leads to life and what does not. We can know where to put weight and where not to put weight. We are glad for that. And Lord, we are also reminded that you give us all the tools we need to do whatever job we've been commanded to do. You will never leave us out in the field without the tools we need to bring a harvest. So Lord, we're thankful for that. And we are expectant. We are watching and waiting for your return. And Lord, we are eager to be a part of all that you have planned for us in the days, years, decades, and however long it may be until you do come. So Lord, find us faithful and find us ready. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.